presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. All right, this is our second in our uh, little series. I haven't quite decided how long it's going to be, at least four weeks, maybe six, uh, that I've entitled Deserted by God, and we're looking at the dark side of Christian experience. Uh, if any, any of you who were not here last week, I've still got some outlines from last week, and uh, you can pick up one after, uh, after our session today if you like. Uh, last week, we, uh, we just sort of did an overview of this, uh, this whole uh, session. Today, I want us to look particularly at Psalm 73. Uh, it was easy for me to choose this psalm because it's one of my favorites, and I think it really speaks to this whole issue of the dark side of, uh, of Christian experience. And today, I've entitled our session, The Slippery Slope of Disappointment with God, uh, when we talk about disappointment, what what uh, what do we well notice here? I, I, this is this is left over from last week. Uh, disappointment comes from unfulfilled expectations. Uh, somehow, now we don't know whether they are uh, realistic or unrealistic expectations, but when we develop expectations, regardless of whether they are realistic or unrealistic, if they are unfulfilled, that's the thing that results in disappointment. And it's going to be interesting to see that the author of this psalm, and incidentally, David is not the author of all of the psalms. He's the author of about half of them. And uh, remember, Moses wrote, uh, wrote one or two himself, and Solomon uh, wrote uh, some of them. Asaph, uh, uh, who is the author of this one, wrote uh, about 10 or 11, as I recall, of the psalms. And so I thought uh, I put a couple of little uh, references in that left-hand column of your notes to kind of introduce you to who Asaph is. Uh, notice the passage from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. It says, He, and the, he refers to David, appointed some of the Levites to minister <clears throat> before the ark of the Lord to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, Asaph was the chief. They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. So one of the things that we see right here is that Asaph was a contemporary of David. He was a, uh, he was a musician. He played the cymbals. But he was also apparently the chief of the musicians. And as far as his family was concerned, he was from which tribe? That's right, the tribe of Levi. Uh, remember, all of the priests came from the tribe of Levi. Now, not all of the Levites were priests, but all of the priests were Levites. Uh, remember, you got in the story uh, of the uh, the Good Samaritan. Remember, you had the uh, you had the uh, the priest going down one side of the road and didn't uh, stop to do anything, and you also had a Levite who uh, went down the road to and didn't stop to do anything. Uh, both of these people were from the tribe of Levi. The Levites uh, is sort of a generic tribal name. Uh, you had to be a member of that tribe in order to be a priest. But in order to be a priest, you had to be from a certain family within the tribe of Levi. 
and the other people, uh, the other Levites who were not of the family who could serve as priests, served in a different capacity within the uh, within the context of uh, the uh, worship at the uh, at the temple or earlier at the tabernacle as uh, as it would have been in David's day. Uh, notice also apparently. Uh, Asaph lived, I guess, during the latter part of David's administration and on into the subsequent administration of Solomon because in that next passage in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 12 and 13, it says, All the Levites who were musicians, and then it names several of them, and among those names, you'll note names, uh, was Asaph, Heman, uh, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives, it tells where they stood and how they were dressed and they were playing cymbals and harps and lyres. And then notice it says, and the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud. This is when Solomon dedicated the temple. Remember, uh, David was the one who got all the materials together, but Solomon was the one who constructed the temple. And so apparently uh, Asaph lived during that time the latter part of David's administration and uh, the part of Solomon's administration, at least up until the dedication of the temple. So that gives you uh, at least a uh, chronological place to put Asaph. That, uh, that would have been somewhere around the, oh, the, uh, the, the 10th century B.C. But So we want to look at this Psalm 73. It's an interesting psalm, and this psalm is taken from the uh, New American I'm sorry, from the New International Version of the Bible. I really like the Psalms in that version. It leaves out all the these and the vows, and it, uh, it makes it a little bit more understandable, I think. But this psalm is a psalm of despair. It's also a psalm of delight. It's interesting that it begins with the goodness of God, and it ends talking about the goodness of God. But in between that first and last verse, uh, there's a lot of interesting things that, uh, that, that go on. And what we're going to see, just in kind of a nutshell, is that Asaph has, some, uh, has a, some presuppositions about the way life ought to work. And he discovers when he looks around him, he looks all around the world at him, and he sees that life is just not working the way that he thinks that it ought to be working. And so he gets disappointed, he gets uh, despairing over that, and it's not until his perspective begins to change that, uh, <clears throat> that his whole attitude begins to change. So I want us to kind of go through this uh, a verse at a time and just sort of uh, see how it is that, um, uh, that Asaph works through this. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here again, he begins with the goodness of God. Uh, and it looks like from what he says here and from what we see that follows is that his assumption that was wrong, his erroneous presupposition, is that God's goodness is only for his own people. That is, God is good to folks who are good, the folks who are his. And the truth is, uh, as, as uh, you know, and if you've been coming to this Bible study for any length of time or been reading your Bible, you know that God's grace is never deserved. Uh, the whole meaning of the word grace is that it is undeserved. But there are two kinds of grace in the Bible. There is uh, one type known as common grace, and that is uh, that's the kind of grace that uh, God causes the sun to rise and to set, and it doesn't just rise and shine on the uh, house of the Christian it also rises and shines on the house of the non-Christian as well. 
Uh, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace. Uh, the Bible also talks about another type of grace that is effectual grace, and that is, that's the kind of grace in which uh, God brings people to salvation. Uh, the, whole, uh, the whole name, effectual, it effects something. It causes something to happen. That's the grace whereby God brings his own to himself. And so uh, Asaph begins with an erroneous presupposition by saying that God is good to the godly. That is, uh, and that's true. God is good to the godly. But what's wrong with that statement? God is not good just to the godly. God is good to whom? To everybody in the final analysis because of the rain and the sunshine and all of the uh, common grace that we all experience. And uh, so... That's kind of where he starts. He's saying, okay, this is the way life ought to work. People who are good people, that is, people who are Christians, people who are believers, they ought to be getting all the good stuff that God has. And therefore, people who are not good people, that is, unbelievers, they ought to be getting all the bad stuff. That Now, if life worked the way it ought to work, Asaph is saying, that's the way it would work. The good people get the good stuff, and the bad people get the bad stuff. Is that the way life works? No, it's not. And when Asaph looked around him, he began to see for himself that that's not the way life works. Notice what he says, and it tells us a little something about his own spiritual condition in verses 2 and 3. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Now notice he, he, he uses uh, some interesting terms there when he says almost slipped. For I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, why? Why had he almost slipped? Why had he nearly lost his foothold? Verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, the way life is supposed to be working is that good people are supposed to get good things, bad people are supposed to be getting the raw end of the deal, but I'm looking around me, and what am I seeing? The bad people are getting what? They're prospering. They're doing well. They're even arrogant about the thing. And notice he said the result of that, when he started looking around him at the circumstances going on all around him, what was the result to him in verse 3? Yeah, envy. What does it mean to envy? Yeah, to be jealous of someone, to be aggravated, to even be angry because they've got it and I don't have it. And in the final analysis... In the very final analysis, when you talk about envy, envy is really nothing more than criticism of God. Think about it. Envy is criticism of God because what are we saying? We say, God, they've got it. I'm mad because I don't have it. And God, you could have, you gave it to them. Why can't you give it to me too? So we, we, and what he's discovering here is he looks around and he sees the inequities of life. This, uh, this just doesn't seem right. He discovers that there's envy in his heart. He becomes very critical. And most of us, when we become critical, of, particularly critical of God, we tend to not verbalize it. We kind of sit on it. We just pout. That's kind of, remember, that's the way Jonah did in the book of Jonah where he got up on the hill and he just sat up there and just waited for God to 
throw nuclear bombs down on those people in, uh, in Nineveh. He was just so aggravated. Asaph doesn't do that at all. He goes to the Lord and he says, this is what I see and I don't like it and I think it's wrong this way. Let's see what he says. He starts talking about the prosperity of the wicked. That's, remember, that's where his envy was stemming because it just didn't seem right that they were doing well. And as we're going to see, he's gonna, he seems to indicate that he was not doing that well. Verse 4, talking about the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. Why are, uh, why are prosperous people free from the burdens that are common to all of the rest of us? They don't have to worry about it. That's right, they got money. See, money is not a solution to everything, but one of the things that money will do is that it will, it will insulate you from a lot of things. Money also, and incidentally, uh, if you've got lots of money, what kind of doctor can you afford? You can afford the best doctor. If, you, uh, if you've got lots of money, you can afford the best health care. You can go to the best hospital. You can go to the best specialist. Uh, you can make tremendous investments so that you can live off the interest of your money and never have to touch the principle of your money. That's what he's talking about here. They're not struggles. They, they, they don't struggle over where their next meal is going to come from. They don't struggle with how they're going to feed their children. They don't struggle with, with, uh, with how they're going to take care of their health. They don't worry about are they going to have a home next week. They don't worry about are they going to have a job. They've got it made. They're not plagued by human ills. The result, verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. He says, okay, these people think that and look like they've got it made. God, you have been prospering them. You've been good to them, and they're doing well. And the result of their doing well is what? Is it thankfulness toward God for his gracious uh, attitude toward them and his common grace? No. What's, what is their response to that? Pride. Remember what pride is? Pride is the only, uh, the only uh, sickness uh, in the world the only, uh, the only disease in the world. It makes everybody sick but the person that has it. That's right. It makes us, we don't like to be around people with pride. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Why, why would he characterize pride as a necklace? What's the purpose of a necklace? Yeah, to show things, to be showy. You wear a great old big necklace that's bestudded with diamonds and rubies and all of that and you're showing off your wealth. He says pride is their necklace. They're showing off their pride. Look what I've done. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? That, you know, God is the one who had established Nebuchadnezzar during the time of Daniel as the preeminent leader of the Babylonians. And, uh, and Daniel had warned Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to take you down a peg. You need to repent. You need to repent. And uh, nothing happened for about... I think it was 12 months. And then one day old Nebuchadnezzar stepped out on the balcony of his, of his uh, palace there in Babylon. He looked all around and he says, Is this not mighty Babylon which I have built by the power of my own hands? And he said, Before the words were out of his mouth, there was a voice that came out of heaven and said, Sovereignty is taken away from you today. They don't think about this. The wicked don't think about it. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
from their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. What does this say about the attitude of... Now, what does this say about the attitude of the wicked insofar as the way Asaph is describing them? What kind of people are these? (laughs) Politicians, yeah. They do sound like politicians, yeah. Pride. Look at all those words. Pride, violence, iniquity, evil conceit, scoff. Uh, uh, malicious speech, arrogant, uh, threatening oppression. Good grief, you say. And so you say, no wonder Asaph's having a problem. All these people are doing so well, and he's struggling, and he's wondering, why is God doing this? This doesn't seem fair. Notice verse 9. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They speak with hypocrisy. They give all this lip service to God. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They're manipulators. They can turn a phrase just the right way and they can always get exactly what they want. And notice verse 10 proves that. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. You ever heard the, you ever heard the expression, people just lap up what they say? That's what that verse means. People just lap up what they say. Man, these folks know how to turn a phrase just uh, hypocrites. And then verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Now, there's real arrogance. They're just kind of uh, uh, saying, who is God anyway? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. They're, they're very popular. They've got pride going for them. They've got, uh, they're popular. Everything just seems to be great that's going on for them. He said, I don't understand that. This, this is a problem for me. And as a result of what he sees, now what did he say was happening to him as a result of that? Back in verse 2, he'd almost slipped. He'd almost lost his foothold because he was envying them. He was envying what they had. They're unbelievers, but they seem to be doing so much better than the people of God. Notice verse 13. It's a very, very important verse. He says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. In vain I have kept my heart pure. What is it? What? You know, when he says that, it sounds as if he's saying, God's given me a raw deal. Here I am. I'm trying to do the right thing do all the right stuff, you know, offer the right sacrifices at the temple, live an upstanding life before God, be the right kind of husband, be the right kind of daddy to my children. And what's it getting me? And what's he saying it's getting him? It's getting him nothing. But, again, when we come back to the whole concept of grace, if it's God's grace, that's actively at work in our lives, why do we think we deserve something if it's, if it's God being gracious? See, the, the word grace and the word deserve really don't even belong in the same sentence. And he's thinking wrong here. I've kept my heart pure. In vain, I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been doing all this stuff, and what's it gotten me? Now, what's wrong with his thinking at this point? 
Yeah, it's selfish thinking. He's thinking. He's certainly not thinking in terms of grace. He's just thinking in terms of the way the world tends to think. He says, all day long I've been plagued. Boy, a lot of us could say that every day, couldn't we? It just, you know, it's one thing after another. We sit down the phone and somebody walks in the door that's got a problem. Uh, my sweet brother, uh, before he retired, used to have a sign over his door. And he said, all who pass this way bring joy. Some when they enter and some when they leave. And... Uh, but the point is, uh, you know, all day long I've been plagued. It's just one thing after another. And it's looking around and seeing all of this inequity. I've been punished every morning. Good grief. He's just, he's, he's, he's contrasting what he feels like is a raw deal in his own life as a believer with what he sees happening in the lives of all these unbelievers. And isn't it amazing that the Bible speaks to this issue throughout? It, it just over and over and over and over. And in spite of the fact that the Bible speaks to it, you and I still have this problem too. We look around and we say, I don't understand this. Job didn't understand it in his day. And God, uh, it's fascinating in the, in the life of Job that God never gave Job an explanation. In fact, God just uh, took old Job outside and said, look at that, all those constellations, Job. Uh, incidentally, where were you when I hung all that stuff up there? And what about this and what about that? And Job said, I've talked way too much already. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Because they just, uh, there were some things for which there simply were not answers. Now, at verse 15, Asaph's thinking begins to change. And this is the real turning point. This is, uh, this is uh, essentially... Where almost where the watershed of the psalm is. Right before you get to this, you see the whole emphasis on the psalm is on his circumstances, what he sees in his own life, what he sees going on in the lives of other people around him, how inequitable it all is. And then after this, his whole perspective begins to change. Now, it's interesting that his circumstances do not change. Only his perspective changes. Let's see how that happens. It begins in the verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, and when he says, I will speak thus, the thus refers to what? All of this stuff that he's been saying. All of this stuff between verses uh, 4 down through 14. If I had said, I will speak thus, if I were, if I were going to go out and verbalize all this stuff, he said, I would have betrayed your children. So notice, instead of going around, now he's uh, now obviously he's saying all this stuff to God, but he's not going around and saying it to other believers and to particularly to immature believers. Why is that a wise thing for him not to do? What would what might that do to their faith? Yeah, it might upset their faith. You're, yeah, kind of slant them in the wrong direction. It might upset their faith. So it's interesting at this point that what we see Asaph do is he, uh, even though he's struggling and he's, uh, he's envious almost to the point of slipping, almost to the point of losing his, uh, his, his steady foot, uh, foothold there, what we see him do <clears throat> is we see him obey but the obedience that he gives 
is really out of a sense of duty more than anything else. He's saying, look, he says, if I talk about this stuff aloud, especially to all the people around me, all it's going to do is just tend to tear them down. So, Lord, I've kept my mouth shut. I'm talking with you, but I'm not talking with all these other people about this. He said, if I had done that, I would have betrayed your children. So we see him, uh, we see him obeying, but obeying more out of a sense of duty than anything else. Verse 16. Now, remember, he's, he's starting to turn the corner. Now, it's, it's fascinating, too, that I think part of the process of working through problems is being able to say all of these things to the Lord. I can, I can remember times, in fact, I can remember one real vividly. Uh, I don't remember how long ago it was, but I know it was at least eight or ten years ago where I really got ticked off at the Lord about something, and I thought that he had, the Lord had just done me wrong, and I thought he had done somebody else who needed to be done wrong, that he had done them right. and I mean... I felt like I was living through what Asaph was going through. And I remember I had just, I had stopped praying. I had stopped reading the Bible. I had stopped doing all of those kinds of things. And I was just sulking. I was a good example, again, of Jonah the prophet sitting out on the hill. And I was out one day working in the yard. I think I was digging holes or uh, planting trees or doing something. But anyway, the more I worked and thought about it, the more I got worked up. And finally, uh, nobody was out there except a dog and me. And I remember just looking up in the sky and shaking my fist and saying, Lord, this is wrong, this is wrong. And do you know that was the turning point for me? Because I finally had begun to talk with the Lord. Now, I was wrong in what I was saying, and my whole attitude was wrong, but God started dealing with that, and God brought me back around to where I needed to be. So... The point I'm making is that in Psalm 73, God uses all of uh, Asaph's complaints as part of the process to bring Asaph to where he needs to be. Verse 16, he says, When I tried to understand all this, understand all what? Yeah, why life is working the way it is. Now remember, this, this is up here again from last week. Remember we said that that basically man is, uh, uh, human beings are a spirit. Uh, we are, we are, we're spiritual beings and that, uh, and that we have several components about us in which we are made in the image of God and a uh, rational component, an emotional component, and a volitional component. And part of the rational component, that is our ability to think, our ability to reason, uh, because we are made that way, we're constantly trying to make sense out of life. Why, why are things the way that they are? It's not a bad thing to be that way. But sometimes we don't find the answers that we want. Here's what Asaph's trying to do. He's trying to make sense out of this. He said, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. What is oppressive? What does that sound like? Yeah, just kind of push you down. He said, Man, the more I thought about this, the, the, the awfuler it got. Good night, I just felt pressed down. It was, I couldn't make heads or tails out of it, verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. 
till I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, what's significant about the sanctuary? You say, well, that's where the pews are. Well, yeah, they are now. But the sanctuary in Asaph's day, remember that would have been uh, the old tabernacle as it was set up, and then ultimately when David, uh, 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 when Solomon came along and built the temple, it, it certainly would have had to do with the temple. The sanctuary was a place where you found, you found basically three things. You would certainly find the presence of God. You remember the, uh, in both the old tabernacle and in the temple, the, the uh, presence of God was in a visual form known as the Shekinah glory. It was, a, it was like a cloud, and it, and it stood over the place where the ark was. Uh, where the mercy seat was on top and the two cherubim and the, uh, and the Shekinah glory was there. That represented the presence of God. That was the same thing as what went before the children of Israel as they wandered in the desert those 28 to 30 years. The presence of God to protect them, to lead them, to guide them, to do all of those things. The presence of God was in the sanctuary. Also, that's a place where you heard the word of God proclaimed. This, after all, this is a place not only, remember we talked about, this is where the priests and the Levites were, and those people were skilled in the use of the scriptures. And it was also a place where the people of God were located. So you've got the presence of God, the word of God, and the people of God. No wonder he began to be encouraged and his thinking started to change when he came to the sanctuary of God. Now, if we were to put it in today's vernacular, what would we say? We would say, well, when I tried to understand all this, man, it was tough on me until I entered the presence of Jesus. We, that's what we would say, because He is our sanctuary. He is the place of worship for us. He is the place where we commune. We don't have to be in a special kind of place in order to meet with God, because... Uh, he has promised He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Now, when He comes into the presence of the Lord, now, interestingly enough, if you look at all of the pro, if you look at the pronouns in those first few verses that we've already looked at, down through at least through verse fourteen, while there are a, there's a nice array of pronouns, the predominant pronoun is the word they, 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 they. they just emphasizing what's happening to somebody else and to all the circumstances. When you get to this point, <clears throat> the predominant pronoun becomes I. There's something going on with me. And by the time you get to the end of the psalm, the predominant pronoun has to do with you or the Lord or God, you as referring to the Lord. And we shall see that. It says, I entered the sanctuary of God and what was the first... Now, all of a sudden... Now, have his circumstances changed in iota? No, not a thing. The only thing that's happened is he's been thinking about this. He's been wrestling with it before God. He's been talking with God about it, talking with God about the seeming inequity of all of this. And he finally says, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk with other people because that would be the wrong thing to do. That would put them in the same shape that I'm in, so I'm not going to do that. But he goes to the sanctuary of God. He comes into the presence of God. And as he does, something happens to him. Nothing about the arrogant and the wicked change, 
but something about his perspective begins to change. First thing he notices, the latter part of verse 17, he says, Then I understood their final destiny. See, what's he been focusing on as far as the other people are concerned, the wicked? The present, what they've got right now, how easy they got it made, man got it made in the shade, and all the material stuff, that's what he's focusing on. But he's, now he's got a new perspective. And it's not that those things aren't true right now, but it's like, it's like taking off the blinders and all of a sudden I see the screen like cinemascope. And, oh, there's more there than I realized. And he said, whoa, they may have it made right now. But I understood their final destiny. That is, while it looks like they got a great deal going on right now, what does it look like over here at the end for them? It's not bad at all. It's, 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 it's not good at all. In fact, it's bad. Now, notice he doesn't rejoice over that. He doesn't say, ha, 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 boy, they're going to get theirs one of these days. You don't hear any of that at all. But he's just saying, it isn't all that it appears. This perspective that I've been looking at is not all of the perspective. Then he talks about their situation. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. Now, when he first started talking, who was it that was slipping? He was. He, was. he said, I was slipping when I looked at them and I had the wrong idea about all of this. He said, they're the ones on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Remember, I, I think it was Voltaire, that great atheist, uh, several centuries ago, who on his deathbed began to cry out. And just the darkness was coming, the darkness was coming, and just cried out in fear. Uh, after all of those years of denying that there was a God. So he changed, his perspective about the wicked changes. Yeah, they got it made now, but boy, it doesn't look so good as far as the future is concerned. And notice his perspective about, uh, about God begins to change too in verse 20. He's, uh, it's sort of a combination of the wicked and also about God. It says, As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord you will despise them as fantasies. Now, notice he's using the analogy of a dream here. Uh, and all of us have dreams from time to time. And uh, do you put much credence in what you dream? Most of us don't. And he says it's going to be that way. He says, this, he says what's going on now as far as this is concerned, he said it's going to be kind of like the Lord just... Now, we know that the, another of the uh, Psalms, Psalm 121, says that he who keeps Israel does not slumber nor sleep. But he uses this imagery of the Lord waking up, and when he does, it's like the Lord... And notice this time the word Lord is in caps and lowercase, and that's the word Adonai. That means master. It, uh, it's, a, it's a word that's used not only of God, it's also used of human beings as well. This is... a is a different term from the covenant name God. He says, When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Remember the word uh, in our English language, the word despise has the connotation of hatred. Oh, I just despise her. We just, you know, you, know, you could just die and burn up and it'd be all right with me. But that's not what it means in this language. The word despise means to take lightly. Do not despise the 
chastening of the Lord. Do not take it lightly, the New Testament says. It says, when you arise, O Lord, you will take lightly these things as fantasies. The Lord will look at these, uh, will, will look at all of this, and he says, no. All this stuff that they've got right now, it doesn't amount to anything because look at what's going to happen at their end over here. He goes on to say in verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. Notice how honest he is about himself here. He said what, was, what his heart had been doing, what had been grieving over this situation, his spirit, he, he calls his spirit embittered. He says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, he says when I was thinking the way I was thinking back in verses 4 through 16, he says, Lord, I was acting like an animal. I was just kind of running on instinct. I wasn't using the mind that you gave me. All I was thinking about is instinct. All I was, I was thinking instinctually. I was thinking about self-preservation. That was wrong. I was a brute beast before you. Now, does this mean that Asaph had a poor view of himself? No. It just means he has an accurate view of himself. He says, I was dead wrong. I was thinking in a beastly kind of fashion, and that was a that was the wrong way. Now, notice what he's doing. He's changing the way he thinks about the wicked. He's changing his thinking about God, and he's beginning to change his thinking about himself. Notice he goes on to say regarding himself in verse 23. He says, yet, and that, that yet is a wonderful connecting word. I am always with you. He says, you know, they've got it made now but they're in a mess in the future. I've got you now, but I've also got you in the future, and you've got me. I am always with you. You hope That's security. Remember, that's one of the things that we long for, we said, a sense of belonging. He's talking about that very thing. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. The right hand is the hand of power, the hand of blessing. You guide me with your counsel. You're the one who gives me guidance. You're the one who provides me with intimacy. You provide all of that kind of need in my life. And afterward, after what? After this life, you will take me into glory. So on the one hand, you've got the wicked. What sort of assurance do they have as far as the future is concerned? Looks pretty grim. But when he looks at his own life, he's saying, he said, my circumstances still haven't changed. It looks like, from all practical purposes, it looks like I'm getting the short end of the stick and the wicked people are getting all the good stuff. But he says, you know, he said, in the final analysis, I've really got it all because you've got me, I've got you, you've, you've promised to be with me forever and you are. You guide me, you're intimate with me. And, and after all of this is over, while these people go into an awful, awful future, off into an, uh, a godless eternity, it says, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I decide, desire beside you. His, he's got a brand new focus. Now, his focus has shifted from circumstances to what? To the Lord. Does that mean he's ignoring his circumstances? No. Does it mean his circumstances have changed? No. But it just means he's got a bigger picture now. My flesh and my heart may fail. And boy, I'll tell you, 
the first part of this psalm shows us how his flesh failed. And also, uh, it refers to the fact that, uh, that he's going to age and eventually die, and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice back in verses 12 and 13, he talked about the wicked are carefree, they increase in wealth. That was their portion. Their portion was money. But he says, what is his portion? He says, God is his portion. Now, it's interesting that up to, the, up to this point, that the terms that, that uh, Asaph has used is he's used the word God, and that's the word Elohim that means the creator. Uh, it comes from the word that has to do with the powerful one. And he's used the word uh, Lord in, uh, in caps and lowercase one time, which is, uh, which is the word for master. But when he gets right to the end of this psalm, he's going to use the covenant name of God. And he talks, we see his new attitude he's here in verse 27 and 28. He, and he makes, a, <clears throat> excuse me, he makes a contrast between, <clears throat> between unbelievers and himself. Those who are far from you, the unbelievers, will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Lord, you always do what's right. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord. Now notice the word Lord. This time is not in caps and lower. It's all caps. That means it's the covenant name of God. It's the name Yahweh. The, uh, the ever, the, uh, the uh, self-existent one uh, in the old uh, Hebrew Bible, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, sometimes translated Jehovah, the covenant God. <clears throat> That's the term that he's using here. I have made the sovereign uh, Lord. God does what he wants to. He blesses people the way he wants to. He sometimes blesses the wicked immeasurably in this life. That's okay. God is sovereign. He can do what he wants to. He can, uh, he can uh, give Moses mercy, and he can give Pharaoh justice. That's God's business. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Notice at one point he said that silence was the best thing to do, was to be quiet. But now he says, I can't be quiet now because I've got a new view of you. And notice that now his obedience is not out of a sense of duty. His obedience now is out of a sense of devotion to, to God. God has not changed. His circumstances have not changed. What's changed? Asaph's changed. His thinking has changed. So what do we conclude from this in our last couple of minutes? Well, I've put three things there in, uh, in your outline. First of all, only when God is central in our thinking are we able to see life as it really is. Again, Asaph started with his focus on circumstances. He ends with his focus on God himself. And God encourages us to come to him with our complaints, with our misgivings, because he alone is the one who can help us to work through those things. Secondly, Yes, God is good. There's no question about that. But in bestowing his goodness, God is also sovereign. And God is also gracious. God doesn't owe anything to any of us with the exception that God owes condemnation to the guilty sinner. And it's God's prerogative to be gracious to whomever he will. 
For this very, uh, remember Paul wrote in Romans 9, for this very reason I raised you up in talking to Pharaoh. For this very reason I raised you up that I might demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That's the sovereign right of God to do that. And then thirdly, the Christian life is a life that's characterized by repentance and faith. To repent means to change our mind. And a true change of mind results in a corresponding change of attitude and behavior. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. That's right. So true change is characterized by repentance, a change of mind, which means a change in attitude and a change in action as well. Both repentance and faith are gifts from sovereign God. And it's difficult times, such as what Asaph was experiencing, that God can use as a seedbed for the development of faith. And we'll close our session by looking at that little passage from Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, where Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. And Paul is talking about we come to the realization of the tremendous love and care and concern that God has for us as His children. Praise be to God that even in the difficult times, even on the slippery slope of disappointment, God is there to sustain us. Praise be to His name. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.